Good morning. Right, you may recall a couple of weeks ago, John introduced this series on the disciples of Jesus. And one thing he said that struck me was that if he'd been God, he would have done things differently. He did go on to say that it was a good job God was in charge as he knew best, just in case you were wondering whether he was making a takeover bid or not, but no. I have to say that I echo that sentiment when we look at Matthew, or Levi, as he is sometimes referred to. He certainly wouldn't be in my top 100 if I was looking for candidates to be one of my followers and to proclaim the message I was bringing as the Son of God. But as Nick said last week, he chose a widely varied group of disciples from different backgrounds and cultural customs, each with a unique and distinctive personality, just like you and me. Do you sometimes wonder why God wants you as part of this Christian family we call NCF? What have I got, what have you got that we can bring to use for God with this group of people? Have a look around, please. Look at these people who are around you. What have we got that Jesus should draw us all together to form NCF as a body of Christians? We mostly come from different backgrounds. We have doctors, dentists, a tax official, banker or ex-banker, yeah, indeed, <laughs> a scientist, electrical engineer, people from pharmacy, a music teacher, industrialists, nurses, authors, quite a, quite a range, aren't we? Sculptors, students, and retired people, to name just about a few of you. If I've left you out, it's nothing personal. I'm also sure, I know I have, that pretty much, if not all of us, have things in our past that we would rather other people didn't know about. Although, of course, God knows them as well, so we can't hide them from him. And yet God, in his wisdom, brought us all together to form a group of Christians called an Eaton Christian Fellowship, to work together to declare the good news of Jesus to those around us, and to use our unique backgrounds, talents, experiences, and giftings for the benefit of each other. Thus it has been for the last 28 years, and except for one or two hiccups along the way, it has worked pretty well. Not because we're particularly good at it, but because God knows what he's doing and has brought people into the group as others have left for various reasons to maintain the work which he began, the work which he began in us and will continue until it is completed. How does that compare with the calling of the first disciples? It's not that dissimilar, I would suggest, and is a model that God and the church has continued to use ever since those first disciples were called. So why did Jesus call Matthew to be one of the first disciples? 
Matthew, sources tell us, came from a reasonably wealthy family of tax gatherers and was himself a customs collector in Capernaum. He was married with children and whilst there is no suggestion that he was dishonest in his dealings with people, the majority of customs duty collectors at the time reputedly were adding a percentage for themselves on top of the tax that the Roman authorities asked them to collect. And Matthew would undoubtedly be tarred with the same brush, whether or not he was dealing honestly with people. That brings us to the next point, that he was working directly for the Roman authorities who were ruling over Israel at the time. And anyone who worked for the oppressors as the Romans were seen was immediately viewed with suspicion by the mainly Jewish population. Conversely, his Roman employers would not, I suspect, look kindly on an employee who was openly following a teacher prophet who was gaining a reputation for stirring up the Jewish people. And his job as a customs collector, I would suggest, would not be available to him should he wish to return to it once he had accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him. Not on the face of it good credentials to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Who might I have chosen if I'd wanted to spread my message quickly and to all the right people? Putting on my banker's head, I was a banker, business banker for 30 odd years if you didn't know, but uh, it moulds you into a certain pattern of thinking. And if I put that banker's head on now, putting a business plan together to achieve the best results and the widest distribution of the good news as quickly as possible, I'd be looking to appoint the leading influential members of Jewish society, the business leaders, the leading religious figures, the royal family, the leading politicians who could open doors and exert influence in all the right places. What do you think Jesus might have thought of my plan? Not a lot, I hear you say. What did Jesus have to say about some of these people that I've just put into my plan? Matthew 23 is a chapter dedicated to telling the Pharisees and teachers what Jesus thought about them. And he didn't hold back. Perhaps the most quoted verse is verse 33, where Jesus describes them like this. You are nothing but snakes and the children of snakes. How can you escape going to hell? That comes from the contemporary English version. The NIV says, You serpents, you spawn of vipers, how can you escape the penalty of hell? Perhaps not then, the leading religious figures as part of our group. The royal family. King Herod had set out to kill Jesus and had had the young children of Bethlehem murdered soon after his birth in order to try and achieve it. Perhaps not then, the royal family. Matthew 21, 12 to 13 tells us, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. Perhaps not then, the local businessmen. The politicians, the Sanhedrin and the Roman leaders, not all but most, conspired together to have Jesus crucified as they feared what he might become. 
not likely to be responsive to a call to carry the message of the good news. Jesus wasn't exactly complimentary about my choice of people to carry the good news. But he also said this in Mark 2, 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The New Living Translation, that was the NIV, says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. In context, this is the occasion where Jesus has just called Matthew, also known as Levi, to follow him. And having accepted Matthew's invitation to dine with him, Matthew, not surprisingly, invites what are described as many tax collectors and sinners to dine with them. And it is at this point that the Pharisees, seeing this, ask Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' answer is given in verse 17, where the New Living Translation clearly implies that Jesus considers the Pharisees to be full of their own self-importance and too good to associate with such people as Jesus was eating with. Whereas Jesus says, these around this table are the people I've come to save, who will admit that they are sinners in need of forgiveness and turn to God to receive it. It's the message that the disciples eventually took all around the known world, which is still the message we preach today to all those who are prepared to listen. Romans 3.23 in the New Living Translation says this, For everyone, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. It's the gospel message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Paul preaches it here in Romans, and which each of the disciples would have preached as they travelled around the world following the day of Pentecost. Matthew would have been able to add his own powerful personal testimony of how he was removed from a dubious lifestyle as a tax collector and brought into God's presence by Jesus and taught the truth of faith by Jesus. His lifestyle would have shown the truth of his conversion and the fact that he, a tax collector, one of the most despised professions in Israel, had been accepted and embraced by Jesus as one of his closest followers. This would have encouraged many who thought themselves too steeped in sin to be worthy of accepting Christ as their saviour to think again and to realize that no one is so steeped in sin that Jesus will not accept them. There are many today who feel the same way, that they are too steeped in that sin to be acceptable 
to Jesus. I have a very close family member who has that view. And we're trying our best to persuade them that it isn't true. But it's difficult when you've taken that on yourself to get that viewpoint changed. So it's slowly, slowly. And eventually, I'm sure, God, through the Holy Spirit, will touch that person's heart and we will see them come to Christ. It's certainly our prayer. But part of our responsibility to all of those that we know who are in that situation, through our testimony in some cases, is to show them the truth of Romans 3.23. That we can come to Jesus just as we are, warts and all, and he will turn no one away who truly repents and asks for forgiveness of their sins, whatever they may be, and however dark we may think they are. Just as an example, remember David, that great man of God from the Old Testament. He was in his weakness also a murderer, an adulterer, a schemer, a liar, and had to live with the consequences of his sins. But God forgave him when David came to him with a contrite heart. And more importantly, God continued to use him despite his weaknesses. Hopefully not many of us can match the severity in human terms of David's sins. But I'm sure that each of us has a few of our own that we've had to seek forgiveness for. And it's reassuring to know that if God continued to use David, then he will continue to use us as well. We're not any different from those first disciples. We all come from different backgrounds. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Remember John reminded us that when Jesus was crucified, all of the disciples ran away initially, afraid for their own lives. Peter denied Jesus three times. Would we have done anything different in their place? But God, in his grace and mercy, brought them back together and at Pentecost endowed them with the gift of the Holy Spirit and they were emboldened to speak out the message of the good news of Jesus. It wasn't easy and they were all, apart from John, martyred for their faith. The same is true for us today. We have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We have received the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus command to go into all the world and make disciples it's true to, it's true, it is as true today as it was for those first disciples and in many parts of the world Christians are still being martyred for their faith do we take the opportunities as God gives them to share the good news with those he puts in our path Matthew we are told was at first viewed with suspicion by the other disciples in view of his background but he's obviously changed lifestyle meant he was quickly accepted and trusted by them. When the persecutions of the Christians in Jerusalem forced the disciples to leave and to travel around, we're told that Matthew travelled north, continuing to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to baptise new believers, despite the dangers of persecution that still existed. He travelled extensively through Syria, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia and Thrace and it was in Thrace that he was martyred when we're told unbelieving Jews conspired with the Roman soldiers to murder him but Matthew gave himself wholeheartedly to Jesus and his followers and he believed totally in the message which Jesus brought such that he was prepared to give up a lucrative job to follow him to preach the message of salvation even in the face of persecution. 
and to make the ultimate sacrifice of giving his own life for his faith and belief in Jesus. We, hopefully, will not be called upon to make that ultimate sacrifice, although some may. But as Matthew, having accepted Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, was given things to do for the kingdom, then as part of the family of Christians called the Eaton Christian Fellowship, or your own church if you're visiting, we also have a role to play in promoting God's kingdom right here, right now. It's our responsibility to seek God for what that role is and to operate in it. And when we are all doing that, we will see amazing things happen as God blesses us. And I believe that now is a unique time for the Eaton Christian Fellowship. And God has raised up a new person to lead us. And we believe with all our hearts that John is that person that's been raised up by God to lead us forward and to bring new vision, new purpose, new excitement. Fiona was quite right last week when she said, you know, this guy's full of bounce and zim. Quite the opposite of what I am. Very calm, reserved, quiet, get on with it sort of guy. John, through no accident, I'm sure, is quite the reverse of that. And he will bring that enthusiasm and that excitement into his ministry. And we will see things change, which is great, because we can sometimes get into a rut, and we can follow that rut, and that rut gets deeper. And the deeper the rut gets, the harder it is to get out of it. And this, I believe, is the time where God's saying, time to get out of that rut. Time to move into something new. Time to move into an exciting new chapter for NCF. So we as a congregation have that privilege of being here at that time when that happens. And we need to get behind John as he does that. Because some of the things he might want to bring in, you might think, hmm, do I really want that? But if it's from God, it'll happen, it'll work, and it will be blessed. So we need to get around him, build him up, pray for him, as Keith said. Prayer is an amazingly powerful weapon, and we need to use it. There's a guy called Simon Whiteley in rugby, we spoke to you about him a few weeks ago, has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And Simon is still continuing to preach on occasion. Is still being held up and supported and it's brought real blessing to that congregation in rugby because they've had to focus on something different from what they were focusing on before. As John and Jill move into their new roles, we need to move into our roles so that we can lovingly support them to carry out the role which we know that God has given to them. And it will all be for God's glory at the end of the day. And if we carry out our roles, God will pour out a blessing upon this church. Because if we carry out our roles, we will dwell in unity as a fellowship and as a family. And Psalm 133 tells us, where there is unity, God commands a blessing. And we want that blessing. I want that blessing. I trust you want that blessing as well. Hold up John and Jill in your prayer times as often as you can. And let's grow this church together going forward. In Jesus' name. Amen.